Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. I'm very privileged to be a part of this generation because I get to do what I love most, which is advocacy and activism without feeling like people are making fun of me or ridiculing me. But at the same time, it's also a challenge. When I think about the future, I can't help but wonder what kind of world will be waiting for kids like me. Will the soil be healthy enough to grow nutritious fruits and vegetables? Will we still see bees buzzing through the flowers in the spring and get to enjoy their delicious honey? Will we still be able to turn on the tap when we're thirsty and pour ourselves a glass of water without a second thought? I'd like to think so. That's why I'm trying to learn as much as I can about climate change science, stories, and solutions and share what I learned with all of you. Together, we can decide what type of future we want for our planet and discover the power we have in shaping it. This is We the Children, the podcast where kids talk climate change. I'm Zach, your host. I'm 12 years old, and I live in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Claire, fellow eco-enthusiast and Zach's teacher. What's on our agenda today, Zach? Today we're going to learn about climate advocacy and student activism from this week's guest, Laitanya Beilai Jandam. Beilai is based in Bogor, Indonesia, and is an indigenous environmental activist. She's only in her early 20s, but has already been doing this work for a long time and credits her parents for fostering her climate consciousness at a very early age. Her main focus areas are climate intersectionality, climate justice, and indigenous land rights. Since completing university for medical sciences, health, and human science, Beilai has worked in both Indonesia and internationally to create a more equitable and sustainable world through planetary health. Wow, Beilai sounds really inspiring. I can't wait to hear about her work. She seems like a great role model for young people who want to take action and make change happen in their communities. Throughout this conversation, I'll share some questions that you can discuss with your friends, parents, and classmates. And I'll do my best to define some key terms and concepts that come up as we go. Let's meet Beilai and learn more about the roots of her life and work. So yes, I am of Dayak descent. I was raised in Bogor, which is located in Java Island in Indonesia. Bogor is known here as the city of rain and very true to its name. It's raining right now as we speak in the morning at 7 a.m. One of my favorite places in Bogor is the Bogor Botanical Gardens, which is this huge botanic garden filled with lots of old trees, diverse species, and I really love spending my time there when I'm free. You've said that being a member of the Dayak tribe has given you a sense of responsibility to take care of your land and your culture. Could you expand on what being Dayak means to you and if it inspires your work today? The Dayak tribe is an indigenous tribe from Borneo Island, Indonesia, and we are known globally as forest guardians because Borneo is an island that houses the third uh, largest area of tropical rainforest in the world. And similar to many indigenous peoples and local communities across the world, the Dayak people, we have a really deep connection with the land 
and the forest that is around us. And this strong relationship with nature is something that shapes our culture, something that shapes our way of life, which tends to be more nature-based and all about living in balance with the living things around us. And so what I mean by forest guardians is that when indigenous peoples like the Dayak tribe live, they interact every day with the forests around them and they tend to not have exploitative characters when they are living around the forest compared to, for example, other corporations or companies that may only see the forest as a commodity. The Dayak people see it as a source of life. So we don't take more than we need and we always make sure to give back to nature just as nature gives back to us. How involved in climate preservation are your parents and family members? I feel like I was born into a family of environmentalists and every day the work that they do is something that pushes me to also continue being a great advocate in this space. My mother is my first and also lifelong mentor. She's a big advocate for investing in young people, investing in the next generation, whether that's through supporting their education, whether that's through uh, building their capacity as a public speaker. And so that's also something that she's always supported me to do. And she's the one who has gotten me to where I'm today. She herself is a forest conservationist and a community specialist. So her work every day for the last 30 years or so is devoted to protecting the natural world. She has projects all over Indonesia, but specifically also in Borneo, taking care of some of the biggest forest areas there. And she always works with the local and indigenous communities in that area, which teaches me so much about why communities are an important part of forest conservation. My mother would take me to meet indigenous communities in different islands of Indonesia. And I was incredibly privileged when I was young to be able to learn from frontline communities across Indonesia about what protecting nature and culture actually look like. Definition time! Frontline communities are defined as the communities that experience the first and worst consequences of climate change. These are often historically marginalized communities living in areas disproportionately affected by climate change with high exposure to climate impacts like flooding. We also have in our family a bucket list of visiting all the national parks in Indonesia, uh, which is filled with rich biodiversity and just beautiful landscapes. Yeah, that's something that is just a core value in our family. And I'm really happy that I get to be a part of this supportive community since I was small. I love visiting national parks, too. It would be really cool to visit one in Indonesia. Yes, absolutely. If you come here, let me know, and then we can host you and we can visit all the national parks. (laughs) I will. One way to develop a greater appreciation for your environment is to spend more time exploring parks, river valleys, and other natural wonders with your friends and family. What is your favorite kind of landscape to explore? Do you like forests, marshes, prairies, deserts? What is the landscape like where you live? So I read that your mother took you to collect plastic garbage near a river when you were six years old. Is that a true story? And if so, can you tell us more about it? 
Yes, it is a true story. She took me to my first river cleanup in Bogor. The river is actually not that far from where we live. And that's really when I first learned about other problems in the in the environment space, which at that point, maybe I've only known about forests and communities, but then I learned about waste in big cities. And this is just a continuous learning process as well. And although it's a bit sad that there's so many facets of this problem, it's also really hopeful that there's lots of communities working on this issue. According to a report from the Ministry of Maritime Affairs and Fisheries, in 2019, Indonesia ranked as the second biggest contributor to plastic waste on the planet. Indonesia's rivers are some of the most polluted in the world, with plastic clogging streams and causing harm to wildlife, like birds and turtles. So it's no wonder that Belai and her family wanted to confront this plastic waste problem. But just because an issue isn't in your face doesn't mean it doesn't exist. The U.S. is also one of the largest sources of plastic waste in the world, but as much as half of it is shipped overseas. Out of sight, out of mind, isn't the best policy when it comes to helping our planet. Consider some ways that your family can create less plastic waste, or look up ocean or river cleanups happening in your area. The planet will thank you. Pelai also remembers another impactful moment. In elementary school, she helped organize a field trip for her classmates to visit her mom's office at a forest conservation research center. Maybe we were about nine or ten that I asked for the teacher to take us to my mom's office, which I thought was really nice. But yeah, she taught me to not be afraid to put my hands in the muds, to hug trees, to swim in the rivers. And and I think it's really that early and long-term exposure to this whole space that grew that sense of passion and care inside me. Based on your own experiences, what do you think are some good ways to increase climate curriculum in school systems? First is education about the importance of having a climate curriculum in the first place. And what I mean by this is not really to the young people because our generation and the next generation have shown so much awareness and care and advocates like you who are 12 year old and already leading this work, I think it's very clear that young people know the importance of having a climate curriculum. I think sometimes it's the decision makers and the policy makers who don't. And then the second thing that I think is also really important is in terms of the content of a climate curriculum, it has to be contextual. And that learning process has to be adjusted to whatever is the local context of that school. In Indonesia, for example, we have things called sekolah alam. Sekolah means school and alam means nature, so nature school. We also have in our indigenous communities sekolah adat. Adat means traditions, so a school that teaches us about culture and traditions of our communities. And these are informal ways of learning. They're not recognized as formal educational institutions, but they play such an important role in teaching us about nature and culture based on the local context. And I think this principle of localizing things has to be a part of a climate curriculum that's adopted because 
people's experience and their relationship with nature is so diverse and so different from one place to another. So our curriculum should also reflect that. Around the world, school systems are beginning to recognize the importance of teaching students about climate change. A 2021 report found that 53% of countries surveyed talked about climate change in their national curriculum frameworks, and almost 95% of teachers surveyed around the world thought that teaching the impacts of climate change was important. We still have a long way to go, but here are some more climate education success stories, like the nature schools in Indonesia. In 2019, Italy's Ministry of Education announced that climate change education would be mandatory in schools. In Korea, climate change is taught early on. Four-year-olds learn about weather and climate change, and five-year-olds are taught about climate regularities. And just last year, in my home state of California, a new law passed requiring students from grades 1 through 12 to study the causes and effects of climate change. What's climate education like where you live? We interrupt this program for a local weather bulletin, where we find out how climate change has affected the weather where our guests and listeners live. This week, Baylai tells us about what kind of weather they experience in Bogor. Really, really heavy rain. And it's it's dangerous because Lots of trees by the side of the roads are falling because of the heavy rain. Flooding is happening in some areas in my city because of the heavy rains and poor drainage systems and lots of trash in the drain and everything. So it's it's really a big safety issue for people who are commuting and people who live in lower areas in Bogor. Thanks for the update, Bailai. That sounds really serious. I hope everyone in your community is staying safe. If you'd like to provide a local weather report about how climate change is impacting your home, please visit wethechildrenpodcast.com, fill out the consent form, and drop Zach a voicemail. So, you've said that one of the biggest issues for indigenous communities is that they struggle to gain land rights, and that this has a direct impact on their ability to protect and steward their land. Can you elaborate on this and also explain why indigenous land rights are such an important issue for everyone to consider? Yes, thank you so much for flagging that. Indigenous peoples and local communities, they share a sacred connection with their land and their environment. And they often become the stewards and caretaker of those lands for multiple generations and are very protective of it. Um, Many indigenous communities that I have met have told me that they see the nature and themselves as one and not as separate entities. And they also recognize that their lives depend on it. Like, for example, one of the communities that I work really closely is the Dayak Iban of Sungai Utik Longhouse in West Borneo. They're an indigenous communities who have this very unique culture Uh, and have been forest protectors for a really, really long time. And they have this beautiful ethos or phrase that they live by. And it goes, the forest is our father, the land is our mother, and the water is our blood. And that's a phrase that they teach from generation to generation. And I think it's so beautiful that they can capture what that relationship with nature looks like for them. 
They call the forest their father because it's something that provides for them and their families. They call the land their mother because it is what gives birth to the plants and the trees and the animals that uh, will then support their life. And then they call the water as their blood because in the same way that humans cannot live without blood in our bodies, they cannot live without water in their area. And that's just one example of how connected indigenous peoples are with the life-giving ecosystems around them. That's why they don't do exploitative practices that's going to harm the environment rather than protect it. If they need to cut a tree, they have a rule, for example, to grow three more trees or that they cannot cut trees from the natural old growth forest in their area. They can only cut trees in a specific part of their land. And and just these different cultures and traditions is, is a testament to how natural it is for indigenous people to be taking care of their land. These days, many communities are working to highlight the Indigenous history local to their areas, both acknowledging its significance and demonstrating the connection and care between Indigenous peoples and the land. What do you know about the Indigenous history in your area? Where could you go to find out more? Many Indigenous lands are under threat by bigger companies who are coming into these areas wanting to cut their forests down or wanting to clear out the land. And without land rights, it's difficult for indigenous people to protect their land from these kinds of external threats. If I can use an analogy, it's like having a house but not having a key to it. And the reason why it's important for us to understand this issue is because When indigenous peoples are allowed to take care of their land, they're not the only ones benefiting from it. The rest of the world are. And one of the main reasons is because the forest that they are protecting, about 36% of the remaining intact forests are on... Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Indigenous people's lands and forests are crucial ecosystems that help stabilize this unstable climate that we are currently living in because they have a role of sucking in and storing the carbon dioxide that is so harmful. And so without the leadership of indigenous people and without the land rights that are so important to that, we cannot be protecting our remaining forest. And we might be losing one of the most important ecosystems to help us fight climate change. Indigenous people also play a huge role in protecting biodiversity. Biodiversity affects our access to food, the quality of the air we breathe, and it supports balance in our ecosystem. 
Baylai explained that indigenous communities protect almost 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity. That's a good reason why all of us should care about indigenous rights and follow indigenous people's leadership when it comes to protecting nature. It benefits the entire world. Can you talk a little bit more about youth empowerment and promoting awareness and solutions in the planetary health realm? Yes, youth empowerment is something I'm really passionate about. And it's people like you that continue to inspire me to be in this space. It's really just preparing our generation and the next generation for what's to come. And for me, youth empowerment means supporting young people and in whatever ways, helping them equip themselves with the skills and the knowledge that they need to be able to become climate advocates and deal with this issue that's going to affect all of us currently and in the future. And one of my most passionate work in youth empowerment is specifically in indigenous youth, even something as simple as climate education. Here in Indonesia, there is a big gap between young people in the urban areas and young people in the rural areas, including indigenous youth who live in rural areas, there's a big gap in the climate education that they receive. So while we are hearing more and more young people advocate for this issue, a lot of them tend to be from the city, big cities or the urban areas. Meanwhile, the young people in the rural areas, which is more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, don't receive the same amount of climate education. One of the concepts that Baylai often discusses when she talks about environmental education and awareness is climate intersectionality. Really what that means is working together rather than alone. One of the reasons why climate intersectionality is important for me is because of interconnections. By that, I mean everything that we do is so connected to everything else. What we learn about can impact the things that we do, the actions that we take, the food that we eat can impact the amount of emissions we produce as an individual or as a household, the music that we listen to, the things that we buy in supermarkets, everything is so interconnected. And that's a main reason why we can't be working in a way that is compartmentalized, but it has to be in a way that is intersectional. Do you ever talk to your friends and realize that you know something they don't? or that they're an expert on something that you've never even heard about. That's okay. There is a lot of information out there and it can be really hard to figure out what we don't know. That's why knowledge sharing is so important to raising climate awareness. So what are some ways that you and your friends can stay in the know together? As a young person advocating for the health of the planet and land stewardship, what kinds of obstacles have you faced? And do you feel like you've always been taken seriously by policymakers and other grown-ups? I think it's both yes and no. Yes, because we are at a time where young people are really at the center of climate movements. I mean, looking at the headlines in 2019, Greta and so many youth in the front lines like Mitzi, like Vanessa Nakate, have paved the way for us to be leading the climate movement. They took the world by a storm. And I think it's really in that 2019 global climate strike that people realize 
young people have had enough of being put in the backseat. Now we're in the driver's seat and we want to be leading the change. And it's almost impossible for people to ignore us, <laughs> to ignore the younger generation in this movement. And I think that's a really amazing opportunity because we are seeing young people in spaces that traditionally exclude us. We're seeing young people speak in global conferences. We're seeing young people meet presidents and world leaders to talk about climate change. And, and we're seeing people give that opportunity to our generation to lead and raise the points that needs to be raised in the climate conversations. You've probably heard of Greta Thunberg. She's one of the most prominent youth activists out there and a leader of the climate strike movement. But who are some other young environmental activists that you should know? Here are a few names to look out for. 1. Vanessa Nakate is a Ugandan climate activist who began a strike outside of the Ugandan parliament all by herself in 2019. Her goal was to draw attention to the climate crisis in Uganda, which was causing dangerous rainfall in one part of the country and a drought in another. Her solo protests became a movement, and she later founded Youth for Future Africa. 2. Jerome Foster II is the youngest U.S. White House advisor ever, serving on the Environmental Justice Advisory Council in the Biden administration. A leader of the American climate strikes, he was also one of the driving forces behind the Clean Energy DC Act, which aims to cut greenhouse gas emissions in DC in half by 2032. 3. Autumn Peltier is an indigenous environmentalist from Canada who is well known for her work on water advocacy. After visiting a nearby indigenous community when she was eight, Autumn discovered that they did not have access to clean drinking water due to pollution, and she's been fighting for everyone's rights to clean water ever since, earning three nominations for the International Children's Peace Prize. I'm very privileged to be a part of this generation because I get to do what I love most, which is advocacy and activism without feeling like people are making fun of me or ridiculing me. But at the same time, it's also a challenge when it comes to youth washing. So I don't know if you've heard of greenwashing, but that's when people do things that they say is green, but it's not actually green. And the same way with youth washing is when people support young people, or they say they do, but they actually don't. Lots of young people, I think, are experiencing this because, you know, you, you never know if someone is inviting you to speak in a TV interview, but are they actually listening to you? Or are they just putting on a show because youth leaders are now a trend, for example. And this is something that I've also experienced as well. And it's, it's hard sometimes to be able to discern who is genuine and who is not. But my best advice is first to stay true to who you are in these interviews or conferences. Don't let anyone tell you what to say and what not to say. If you're passionate about an issue, for me, for example, I'm passionate about advocating for indigenous people's rights. I will stay true to my message and not let people tell me what I can and cannot say about issues that my own communities are experiencing. And then another advice would be to look at the track record 
of whoever is inviting you to speak or to discuss? Do they have a history of not following up with their youth leaders or do they have a history of making concrete next steps with the young people that they interview? And I think my last advice is just how do they treat you? You can really tell and and you feel it on your own when someone is disrespecting you or treating you in a way that is disrespectful. So always, always be surrounded by a community that respects your value and know your worth as a young leader and as a young climate activist. Definition time! One of the major global conferences that Belay has attended is the Conference of the Parties, otherwise known as COP. If you've ever heard about COP28 in the news and thought, why is everybody talking about 28 police officers? Allow me to clarify. COP is held every year by the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It gathers world leaders, young people, and community organizers together for meetings and presentations about initiatives and solutions people around the world should implement to fight climate change. The most recent one was the 28th edition, so it was called COP28. So I was 18 when I attended my first COP, which is COP25 in Madrid. And then I've attended all of the COPs following after, including last month. And in COP28, just a few weeks ago, um, for the first time ever, we have the word fossil fuel in that outcome text. And lots of people said that it was historic because we finally acknowledge that fossil fuel is a part of the problem. But for me, it's just a little too late because we've known for a long time that fossil fuels are what drives the climate change. And the fact that one of the biggest and most high-profile climate conference took 28 years to put fossil fuels in their outcome text is quite disappointing more than anything else. And there's even questions, for example, if you know the importance of phase-out of fossil fuels, then if it took 28 years for us to put fossil fuels in the text, is it going to take another 28 years to put phase-out in the text? So these questions make me realize that while COP is a very important part of the process, it's also not everything. And I think the hope that I hold is that the work has been happening before COP and the work will continue to happen after COP as well. It's not like I stopped being a climate advocate after December 12th, right? So for young people interested in fighting climate change as a job someday, what advice would you give them to get started? I think as young people, it's important to find the interconnections. What problems do you see around you and how can you solve this with what you are good at and what you are passionate about? And then my most important tip is to join communities. For me, community is everything. And I'm lucky that my first community is my family, but that might not be the case for everyone. And in order to have this support system to help guide you and to help encourage you, joining communities is a big part of that process. So having your people, finding them, whether it's a school club or a local organization, joining communities, I think is my biggest tip for anyone wanting to enter this space of climate advocacy. Well, thanks for coming on. 
It was so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much, Zach. I hope lots of people can learn from this episode. Bailey is such a powerful activist and gave me so many ideas about how to approach climate change advocacy as a student. We heard about the Dayak tribe too, and I think that their community building work and environmental stewardship is something that we can all learn a lot from. I already have. You can learn more about Bailey and her work using the links in our show notes. That's right. And to test your knowledge, we have a quiz for you about today's episode. The three questions are one, how old was Baylai when she went to a river cleanup with her mother? Two, what does the Dayak term Sekola Alam translate to in English? Three, what was the name of the global conference on climate change we mentioned on the show? And how many editions have there been to date? Check out our Facebook and Instagram at We The Children Podcast to find this week's quiz questions and post your answers there. Or visit WeTheChildrenPodcast.com and leave us a voice message with your responses. We just might play them on our next episode when we'll reveal the correct answers. A big congratulations goes out to our listeners Amara, Milo, and Jack for acing the quiz from last episode, which was about soil health with guest Gabe Brown. Here are their correct answers. One, what is the name of the food verification company that Gabe mentioned? The answer to trivia question one is Regenified. Two, what did Gabe say was the biggest challenge farmers face when it comes to implementing regenerative agriculture practices? The biggest challenge? We don't know what we don't know. Three, what are the six principles of soil health? Context. Two, Cause the least amount of disturbance as possible. Leave armor on soil. Four, diversity. Keeping living roots in the soil for as long as possible. And six, livestock and insects. Subscribe to We the Children on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, we, the children, have the power to make a difference for our planet. Until next time, we'll leave you with today's Voice of Hope, our recent guest, Gabe Brown. What gives me the most hope, Zach, is that we know more now. I tell people, you know, when I went through those four years of disasters, I didn't understand the importance of microbiology and how the nutrient cycle works, how the water cycle works, how the energy cycle works. Now, today, that's knowledge that's readily available. So knowledge is power. And We know how to reverse climate change. So that gives me tremendous hope.